For over 40 years, Daniel Ortega has loomed over Nicaragua like few others. He was part of the Sandinista rebel forces that in 1979 overthrew the Somoza family dynasty that had ruled the Central American nation for decades. Ortega then became part of the transitional government that instituted democratic elections and served as president from 1985 to 1990 and again since 2007. Over those 40 years, critics say, Ortega has transformed into the very dictator he once fought against. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Today's Monday, July 12, 2021. Anti-government protests, the biggest in decades, grip Cuba. LA County records three straight days of 1,000 new daily COVID-19 cases for the first time since March. And England loses to Italy on penalty kicks in the Euro Championship soccer finale. Something else for blokes to blame on Harry and Meghan. Today, we examine the career of Ortega, who will run for a fourth term this November. He has harassed and jailed opponents, rival politicians, journalists, even former Sandinista comrades, who he says threatened the very existence of Nicaragua. The United Nations High Minister of Human Rights, on the other hand, has described what's happening in the country right now as a, quote, climate of terror. Our guests, LA Times reporter Julia Barajas and a Nicaraguan political cartoonist whose work frequently lampoons Ortega, and who now lives in exile in the United States. In late June, 59 countries signed a statement asking Nicaragua to, quote, cease the harassment of journalists and human rights defenders and allow organizations to operate without fear of reprisal. Denise Moncada, Nicaragua's Minister of Foreign Affairs, responded by saying, quote, we're nobody's colony. Julia Barajas is my colleague at the LA Times and has reported on Nicaragua's recent troubles. Julia, welcome to the Times. Thank you for having me, Gustavo. Happy to be here. Daniel Ortega first became famous in the 1970s as one of the leaders of the Sandinistas. That's a group that only Latin American observers really remember now, but they were all the talk worldwide during the 1980s. Remind us of their story. The Sandinistas were a group of left-wing militant rebels who rose up against the U.S.-backed Somoza dictatorship that you mentioned earlier. This was the Somoza family dynasty, which ruled Nicaragua for about 40 years. It all started with Anastasio Somoza Sr., and it was a dictatorship known for using violence to silence political opponents. The family amassed a huge fortune. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars, while most of the country lived in poverty. The family, for example, owned hundreds of thousands of acres of land. They also owned a radio and television station and a newspaper in the capital, Managua. And this is who the Sandinistas were fighting against. The Sandinistas in general were really young. Most of them were either college students or teenagers when they managed to overthrow the regime in 1979. Nicaragua is a young country. Most of the electorate is between 16, the voting age, and 25. Many of those voters have gone to Sandinista schools and rotely learned about the way the Sandinistas saved Nicaragua from dictator Anastasio Somoza. The Sandinistas have also crafted a slick campaign, conspicuously outspending the opposition. Their television commercials, in particular, have relied on sex and rock and roll to sell candidate Daniel Ortega. And one fact is that the group was actually named after a man who led a resistance against the U.S. occupation of Nicaragua in the 30s. 
I'm bringing this up to help us see that concerns about U.S. intervention in Nicaragua have really deep roots even before the Somoza family came into power. When the Sandinistas first came into power for a couple years, they accomplished a lot. Some of that includes a vast improvement in public health services, as well as a national literacy campaign. And then Daniel Ortega, who started out as a Sandinista student leader, rose the ranks to become the country's president. Critics say that's when his authoritarian tendencies began. So as Ortega and the Sandinistas liberate Nicaragua, the Reagan administration vilifies them on the same level as the Soviets, right? Yeah, that's right. This was during the Reagan era in the early 1980s. And during his presidential campaign, Ronald Reagan promised to assist anti-communist insurgencies around the world. Whenever the United States withdraws its presence or its strong interest from any area, the Soviets are ready, willing, and often able to exploit the situation. So right after taking office in 1981, he gave the CIA permission to recruit and train right-wing rebels called the Contras to conduct covert actions against the Sandinista regime in Nicaragua. Their tasks included spy missions and military actions to undermine the Sandinistas. And here in the U.S., we talk a lot about the Iran-Contra scandal. This was also in the mid-80s. And what happened there is that the U.S. provided weapons to Iran in exchange for help liberating hostages in Lebanon. When making that deal, the U.S. allocated $30 million for the weapons. And what's interesting is that the CIA actually funneled more than half of those funds to the Contras in Nicaragua. At the time, when the American public found out, it was a big deal because essentially the CIA used money that was approved for one thing for something else without the approval of Congress. In a videotaped deposition, Ronald Reagan said he had no inkling that White House aides were secretly aiding the Nicaraguan rebels when such aid was illegal. The 79-year-old former president also testified, no one has proven to him there was a diversion of profits from the Iranian arms sales to the Contras, adding, for heaven's sakes, no, when he was asked if he approved of a diversion. Reagan, who occasionally leaned forward and at times gestured with his hands, also testified that he told everyone the U.S. would have to abide by the congressional ban on aid to the Nicaraguan rebels. It's obvious that the execution of these policies was flawed and mistakes were made. I know the stories of the past few weeks have been distressing. I'm deeply disappointed this initiative has resulted in such a controversy, and I regret it's caused such concern and consternation. But I pledge to you, I will set things right. Leaders of some of the rebel factions inside Nicaragua say they won't put down their arms until a transfer of power has taken place. The roaring chant of Violeta, Violeta in Managua this morning as Violeta Chamorro declares victory before her supporters. It is a stunning upset by the UNO opposition against the leftist Sandinista party of Daniel Ortega. In her victory speech, Chamorro called for reconciliation, saying the Nicaraguan people have shown they want to live in democracy, peace and freedom. But the Sandinistas have been in power more than 10 years and it's unclear how a peaceful transition will take place. We'll have more after this break. Meanwhile, democratic elections were still happening in Nicaragua, which is what the Sandinistas always promised. Ortega led for about a decade and lost in 1990 to a former ally, Violeta Chamorro, now, she was never a Sandinista, but her husband, Pedro Joaquin Chamorro, was a newspaper publisher who the Somosas frequently jailed for criticizing them, and Pedro was eventually assassinated. 
The U.S. liked Violeta Chamorro more than Ortega, so they pulled back from meddling so much in Nicaragua's politics. But Daniel Ortega's political career continued, right? Right. After he was defeated by Chamorro in 1990, Ortega kept running for president until he was finally reelected in 2007. And he stayed put ever since. Also, since he came into power, his family has become embedded in Nicaraguan politics. His wife, Rosario Murillo, is the country's vice president, and she was actually the one who gave the order to squash nationwide protests in 2018. Their children, grandchildren, and other relatives also hold top posts in the administration. The family is also plugged into key industries like gas, PR firms, television, even the national police. This is important because they essentially decide what news gets covered, who gets arrested. You know, critics say Ortega's presidency is a lot like the Somoza dictatorship that the Sandinistas fought so hard to break free from. Julia, the past couple of years have seen a lot of turmoil in Nicaragua. You mentioned earlier protests in 2018. They were against social security cuts. Then they turned into pro-democracy demonstrations that Ortega crushed. What's the big issue right now? So the protests have really died down because of all the government repression. What's going on now is that Nicaragua has elections coming up in November. And here it's important to note that because of Ortega, presidents in the country have no term limits. This year, as you mentioned before, Ortega is seeking a fourth term. And in June, the administration started arresting people who stated their intention to run for his seat. The arrests have continued up until July, despite international condemnation. I don't want to oversimplify this, but just imagine if right ahead of the 2020 elections, the Trump administration had locked up Bernie Sanders, Biden, and Harris. But as you pointed out earlier, it isn't just presidential hopefuls. In a matter of weeks, the administration has arrested more than 20 people, including journalists, businessmen, student activists, human rights advocates, even people who helped free Ortega when he was imprisoned by the Somoza dictatorship. Last year, the Nicaragua government passed a law that allowed it to classify people as, quote, traitors to the nation. How's Ortega using it right now against his opponents? So the law, roughly translated, is called Law in Defense of the People's Right to Independence, Sovereignty, and Self-Determination for Peace. In reality, it criminalizes pretty much any act that undermines the administration. This includes a broad range of things like financing a coup, inciting foreign meddling in internal affairs, and so on. Notably, it specifically bars anyone accused of being a quote-unquote traitor to the nation from running for office. This law is actually part of a pack of recent legal changes. For example, it used to be that pre-trial detention could last no more than 48 hours. But the Ortega administration made it so that people who haven't been convicted can spend 90 days behind bars. Why does this matter? Well, if you're behind bars for three months, you can't really run a campaign. And in spite of all this, people are still persisting. Some politicians have even talked about nominating the official candidate in secret to keep that person from getting locked up. I mentioned earlier that there's a lot of international pressure condemning Ortega to try to be more democratic. What about what's coming from the United States? So the U.S. government has been under a lot of pressure from the international community to respond. Congress has implemented sanctions against several officials in the Ortega administration, as well as his family. When the Ortega administration started rounding up opponents in June, his daughter, Camila Ortega Murillo, had her U.S. assets blocked. 
these sanctions also prohibit U.S. citizens from dealing with them. But some U.S. politicians, particularly Republicans, say that those sanctions are not enough. So in mid-June, a bipartisan group of senators called on President Biden to review Nicaragua's continued participation in the Dominican Republic Central America Free Trade Agreement. This is a bilateral deal that limits the amount of tariffs for trading between the countries. But some economists worry that removing Nicaragua from the free trade agreement might actually harm everyday Nicaraguans much more than anyone on the Ortega administration. The November elections are still scheduled. Do Nicaraguenses expect it to be a fair one? Sadly, no. You know, before all the arrests started taking place, some opponents were calling for international observers to monitor the elections in Nicaragua. But the arrests have continued. Plus, dozens of Nicaraguan journalists have been in exile since the 2018 protests, and many others have recently fled the country. And this completely undermines citizens' ability to access the information they need to make the best choice for themselves. Also, the political repression in Nicaragua is affecting migration patterns. In our reporting, we found that while there hasn't been a recent uptick in migrants from Nicaragua, the reason most people are leaving the country is changing. We talked to a few nonprofits along the U.S.-Mexico border, and basically they told us that most of the migrants they get tend to be from Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, you know, people who are fleeing violence and poverty, whereas migrants from Nicaragua are fleeing because they are being persecuted. So there is a real sense of hopelessness. If the top contenders are imprisoned or under house arrest, how legitimate can the election be? You know, in my reporting, I talked to a young Nicaraguan exile in California who, who fled the country with his wife and their baby. And he asked not to be recorded. He asked me not to share his name because he still has family back home. And I asked him, you know, for those of us who are out here reporting on your country, like, what's something that we don't get? What's it like to live there? And what struck me was that he compared living in Nicaragua to being in an abusive marriage. You know, it starts off really nice and then it becomes violent and you're just living in constant fear. And that really stayed with me. I've done reporting on intimate partner violence and what advocates have always told me is that when victims try to leave their abusers, that's when things get the most violent. This makes me think of how with the Ortega administration, you know, there were a lot of people who really supported him, who looked up to him. And now there are people who are not only living in constant fear, but like actually fleeing the country. Thank you for this interview, Julia. Thank you for having me. Next up, a Nicaraguan cartoonist in exile continues to draw Ortega. Since the 2018 protests that gripped Nicaragua, more than 70 reporters have fled the country as Daniel Ortega's government has raided newspaper offices. One repeated target, the online publication Confidencial. It has strong journalistic roots. Publisher Carlos F. Chamorro is the son of former Nicaraguan President Violeta and newspaper publisher Pedro Joaquin Chamorro. Carlos is now in exile in Costa Rica after the Ortega government raided his home. Confidencial's cartoonist is Pedro X. Molina, who has lived in Ithaca, New York since 2018 also under exile. He's been drawing Daniel Ortega since 1990. His first cartoon of him was a sketch of Ortega wearing a tattered Sandinista flag. My work, it's kind of hard because 
there are many cartoonists that they stick to a single style and they use that style for everything they do. But uh, I get bored if I do that. So I jump from one style to another style. For example, one day I do a cartoon that is very simple line artwork. And then the next day I have a parody of a famous painting or a famous movie that I decide to paint like it was oil, you know. So my style is very eclectic, I would say. It's changing all the time. Pedro has fled Nicaragua twice. The first time was during the 1980s, during the country's civil war, when the U.S.-backed Contras fought against the Sandinistas. Many Nicaraguans, we were forced because of the war to go into exile. So we ended up going to Guatemala, which is the farthest we could go at that time. And it was because Daniel Ortega. And then 30 years later, the history repeats itself again, and I have to get out because of the same guy, basically. Pedro eventually returned to Nicaragua and continued to draw cartoons satirizing the government. That didn't make him very popular with officials. In this kind of job, you kind of get used to hate mail. Every day when you put a cartoon out there, you can trust in something. Somebody will get insulted by your cartoon. It doesn't matter the topic. It doesn't matter the tone in which you did your cartoon. There is always somebody who will get upset. And in this case, it's even worse, right? Because we're talking people who doesn't understand how humor works, who doesn't like criticism because they see everybody from above. They see themselves like they are above everybody else. They don't make mistakes. When Ortega came back to power in 2007, Pedro began to draw cartoons of him again. He depicted Ortega as Sylvester the Cat swallowing Nicaragua in the form of Tweety Bird, He's drawn Ortega in a straitjacket and he and his wife, Rosario Murillo, as rabid dogs. A warning to our listeners that the feedback Pedro received is graphic. I remember the very first day that he got back into power, I got a letter in the mail and it was a cartoon, a cartoon with two characters. One of the characters was Daniel Ortega and the other one was me and he was raping me, right? And he was saying, you know, some words that I can't repeat on air. So this is not a game. From there until now, that will just give you an idea on how worse things have been getting in Nicaragua for independent journalists in the past few years. Nevertheless, Pedro stayed in Nicaragua until April 2018, when protests over Social Security reforms bubbled into calls for Ortega to leave office. As a member of the media, Pedro fled for his safety. We went into exile in order to keep working, and we have been working that way since. The Confidencial Newsroom set up a proxy office in the country's capital city of Managua to continue publishing and distributing their work. But then in December of 2018, Nicaraguan officials raided their offices. They took away all the journalistic equipment. And I mean all the, the computers, all the microphones, all the, the cameras, everything they, they could get their hands on, they took it away. Even notebooks, the journalists used to take their notes, all of that was gone. The idea it was to took away everything. In that way, we couldn't continue working. But since we did, they get madder because of that. And, and they have been hunting us, basically. Confidencial continues to publish online and Pedro continues to draw. Now that over 100,000 of his countrymen are in exile, Pedro says he wants to use his work to bring global attention to the political chaos in Nicaragua. 
And I know it's hard to do because we are sadly competing with disaster all over the world, you know, and we are a very small country who doesn't have oil and it doesn't have the geopolitical importance that once we had in the 80s, for example. So it's very hard to get the world's attention right now, but nevertheless, we are keep trying because we care about our country. as many other Nicaraguans who have been forced to die in exile without seeing a free Nicaragua. I hope we could be able to get out of this dictatorship and get back to my country, yeah. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, the rise of the QAnon yogis. Oh my God. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn and Denise Guerra. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editor is Shawnee Hilton. Our intern is Ashley Brown. And our theme music is by Andrew Ethan. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in Desmadre. Gracias. <laughs>